Welcome to Opsy, a podcast for people doing Opsy work in tech. I'm your host, Carol Griffin. And every month, I dig into what Opsy work really is by talking to an operations pro who has something really cool to teach us. In a traditional part of ops like HR or finance, or a newer specialty like no-code ops or marketing ops. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Opsy Podcast. I obviously have a very special guest because all of our guests are super exciting and special. And so today with us, we have Jessica Zwan, uh, who is an early stage startup executive currently wearing the COO hat at Whereby. She spent her career in HR and people operations where she's developed a really unique perspective on how to run these teams, spoiler alert, and involve some uh, strategies that you might typically more associate with a product team. So I'll let her tell you all about those and her awesome new book. So without further ado, let's get started. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, so nice to be on the pod. I must say I love the uh, the podcast branding. It's so cute. It's so on brand for me. I'm obsessed. Is it the first time you've had like someone shout out the Opsy brand? You know, during the podcast, yes. Although I do get compliments on it sometimes, which makes me happy as like the former art school grad who like has a little too much fun in Canva. Yeah, girl, it's really cute. I love it. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I actually had a note here that I was going to compliment you on your beautiful website, which is just like not common. I feel like for operations folks, but like, so little plug there for anyone looking for some inspo, but it's just like, it's so cute. I love your branding and like, thank you. Everything about it is just so cohesive and fun. And one of the many reasons I wanted to talk to you today. Amazing. I'm like, this is now what the, this whole podcast is going to be about. It's just us two talking about our own like online brands <laughs> and presence. Exactly. We'll just like toss compliments back and forth about how cool we are. I love it. Uh, <laughs> well, great. Well, to continue that trend, Tell me how cool you are. Like, give everyone a little overview of your career so far uh, so that people know where you're coming from and, and what you've been focused on. Yeah. So, I mean, your introduction you gave was really nice. I don't like giving, like, really long introductions to myself. But, um, right. yeah, I've, I've primarily worked in people operations. I've got a background in people ops and legal. And I'm currently the COO at uh, Whereby. Whereby is a fully remote video API business. In my role there, I look after everything from finance, people, legal, obviously, uh, and then also customer success, customer support, business operations, and CSM as well. So I'm kind of like a commercial operations type role. You mentioned that I wrote a book. Yes, I've written a book called Build for People as well that's come out fairly recently. And it is all about how to uh, build your employee experience and your people operations team uh, like you build a product function. So it, it it's really focused around the idea of making sure that you're building this kind of product that your uh, employees are subscribing to and then um, really thinking about your operations team with like output metrics and sprint planning and iterative feedback and yada, yada, yada. So I really love talking about that. Maybe we will. I love, love it. We're definitely going to talk all about that. I think that's something I is one of the many reasons I think I was like drawn to you and I like found you online because like as someone who kind of grew up professionally kind of grew up in this like agile flow I like very much still think in like sprints and planning and roadmaps and and I don't feel like that's as as common as it pro- as it should be in like operations teams so we're definitely going to get into that but first I want to kind of zone in on you described yourself as a like a commercial COO or like commercial role and I've also heard you you know describe yourself as like a hands-on COO on your very cute website, in fact. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about what that means to you, especially, you know, when you're leading so many functions? Yeah, I think um, when I say commercial, I don't mean like I am involved in sales per se, but I would say that the way I think about it is more like I 
don't spend a lot of time just only building internal stuff. I really like spend a lot of time being very customer focused, very output focused. So I guess this idea of like this people versus a product thing is like kind of helpful here, at least the, the way that I think about the definitions of things. So I think there are like three products that every company has. You have your product you sell your customers, which is like, you know, Harry's, it's like subscription raises, Riverside FM, it's this beautiful platform we're using to record this podcast. And then you have the financial instrument that you're selling to your investors, your shareholders. Um, and that is a really important product because the higher quality your financial instrument, the better quality products you're able to create because you have better quality investors in the team. It's a very like kind of virtuous cycle there. And the final product is this employee experience, the company that you're building, right? And again, this is a very important uh, product to build the higher quality your employee experience. The more people want to work for you, the better you know, the better fit they are to your USP, the better quality product you'll build, the better financial instrument, the same, the, the story goes on. And what I mean when I say I'm like a, a kind of commercial COO is, again, not like I'm a salesperson, I'm not a CCO, I'm not a VP sales. Um, I really like to think about the ops world. So like finance, legal, people, et cetera, with this very commercial lens of like you are building like a valuable product that contributes back to this kind of financial instrument. Um, it's not just a service function. It's not just an efficiency function. It actually has this inherent value. Um, the better quality your business, the more effective they are, the more valuable your employee base is, the better quality investment you will get, the better product you'll build. Like this thing is, is it, I think, is a really like commercial focus. So that's what I mean when I say commercial COO. And then second question is hands-on. And I think that's mainly just I uh, I'm still like kind of see myself as a bit of a builder. I don't spend a huge amount of time like in spreadsheets or anything like that um, anymore. Unfortunately, I do love when I get the, when my team lets me do things like that. But I um, I still am very much the you know I spend a week in our customer uh, sorry a week an hour a week in our customer support queues every week speaking to customers directly. I will be the person like I'm in every single one of our weekly business review calls with our entire business. I come to every single product sprint planning. Like I really want to, I'm very curious about what's going on inside the business. And I really want to know, even if I'm not necessarily the person like on the ground building things, I think it's really valuable to actually be hands-on with the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think is a nice little kind of like overview of how you see that role um, because COOs, so it does vary so much um, from company to company and kind mm -hmm. of depending on even like the functions you're overseeing. So I guess zooming in on that a little bit, Tell us a little bit about the scope of your role and maybe we can dig in a little bit to, it sounds like you have a long list of functions that you're kind of overseeing and everything from legal to, to finance and stuff. So tell us a little bit more about that. So yeah, I look after basically everything that comes up under that umbrella of like the company you are building rather than the product. Um, the only exception mm -hmm. I would say to that is probably support and success. Um, support and success okay. obviously is still up. I, I would say they're very customer focused. They're part of the product we're selling as a, as a business. So I, you know, like you, you've rightfully said, like COO is a very kind of nebulous role. As for some people, it's almost like yeah. a CFO. Some other folks is very commercial, like very commercial, like sales type almost role. Some people really come from a very like strategy background where it's not hands-on at all. It's very cerebral. But yeah, my role is um, I spend a lot of my time kind of leading my team towards like a big picture goal over a year or, or a six month period, depending through the implementation of like really high quality output metrics on a quarterly basis, and then kind of guiding them along like a roadmap to deliver whatever it is through whatever they decide to implement in order to get that output metric that they've set. Um, and then I'm also kind of the point of escalation for anything significant from a legal perspective or like a contentious exit in the people team or 
um, a really difficult customer deal that we're trying to win over and they want me to get on the call with them, like those kinds of bits and pieces too. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, the the escalation piece so often becomes the unexpected, right? Like you, it's like, how do you like plan for the unexpected that you can't plan for? Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for, for, for breaking that down. Um, I'm going to, I got to ask, like, do you, do you have a favorite function? Do you have one that you gravitate more towards <laughs> and one that you avoid when you can? There's an arrested <laughs> development gif of like, I, I love all of my children equally. I, like, I don't actually, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> I um, do, yes. <laughs> I, obviously people operations is like, <laughs> I don't want to say it's like my favorite, but it's definitely the one that yeah. I um, have spent the longest time working in. I really think the people operations function for me, the reason I love it is it's almost like the most integrated. It touches literally every part of the company, right? Because you're literally like totally. it's actually working with every single person that's doing every single type of role. And no other job, I think, in a company has that kind of scope. You get to see problems and challenges in every single manager. Like you get to see the successes and failures of the different goals people are reaching towards. You get to see like good and bad implementation of like return on investment when it comes to both the team and the ways that they're spending their their money on either tools or or, or something else. And it's also the, the team that has usually actually the biggest responsibility in my opinion, in terms of deployment of budget, because you're, you're essentially responsible for making 60% 60% of a company, like usually it's like a 60-40 split with headcount OPEX, right? Yeah. You're basically the one that's responsible for making sure that you're optimizing that 60% that your company is spending every month, plus mm-hmm. benefits and office and like offsites and all of these other nice to haves, right? So you have this gigantic budget responsibility and this huge optimization op- opportunity and it's cross-functional in every single, literally every single team in the in the company. So I, I really do love that aspect of the people team. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also like, you know, I like, I like the finance function as well because it's, there's something that's very like calming about, it can be captured on a spreadsheet. It can, it can be <laughs> captured on one dashboard or something. I don't know. There's something quite nice about being like, oh, I have everything I need right here in this one big PNL I've created, which just doesn't exist in any other team. Yeah, totally. I also like, I very much feel that like calming aspect of like finance, even when I'm doing something like underneath of in the finance function that I like can't quite wrap my head around or like I'm confused mm. by or whatever. It's like, there's something about like, this is black and white. I almost think of it as like, it's like a different language where it's like, you're learning that language and like, there's a right or wrong answer, <laughs> you know, yes. like, it's like, it's in there. You're learning how to translate. What are these KPIs? Like, what is this? Like what is what is this dollars and cents telling me, right? About like what's working or what's not working, which I feel like circles up to like your greater point of like I feel like I really sense that like problem solver in you that I so often find in COOs of like you're like yeah I want I want my hands in all these departments and also all the other departments because I want to see what they're doing and what they're working on and what I can learn from them. Yeah, completely. But the, I think the finance thing is so funny because like coming from like a people and legal background, I spent like 15 years of my life answering every question with like, well, it depends, like, well, it depends <laughs> what we should do about this. And well, it depends whether we should pay this invoice and like, well, it depends. Which it, but in finance, it's literally just like, is it this? Yes or no? Like a number is a number. Money is money. Yeah. And I think there are some like yeah. interesting things we could talk about, about finance. Like, you know, I don't think every dollar worth of revenue is like, not every dollar is the same in revenue, right? You can have good customers and bad customers and good deals and bad deals. But like for the most part, the things that you're dealing with in finance is like, this, I get very few of my answers in finance are, well, it depends. It's like, how long is our runway? Bam, this date. Like, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
we can argue about how we calculate things, but like at the end of the day, like the data is the data, right? Uh, you can really? slice that a bunch of different ways, but like, yeah, it's our interpretation. It's translation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. And I, uh, as like someone, yeah, I think I, my background has definitely been more like people ops and finance has come later. And I think actually I'd love to dig into that a little bit more because I think something I often talk to ops leaders about, especially ones that have more of a people ops background is this like, I like finance. Well, some people are scared about it and that's totally valid. <laughs> but like, there's so many of us who are like, oh, I like finance, but like, how do I learn finance? Like, how do I get up to speed on this? Like so often I get asked, like, do you have like resources or courses or books or something? And I've even asked some of my favorite finance people and they're like, eh, really? And so I learned on the job. And so I'm always curious, like, how did you learn to do like the finance function or at least oversee the finance function? Hmm. This is, I mean, I, I like the comment of like, it's scary because I think it is one of those things that feels scary, but it's actually like, again, I just don't think it's a very scary function. I think there's like obviously some, I think multiple parts of finance, right? There's like statutory kind of accounting, statutory finance. That is like, again, it's very black and white. It's very like learned. I don't think you need like a COO to know statutory finance. You can hire somebody that is a statutory accountant or an external accountant and have them run that for you. And then you've got the kind of like the two halves of finance that I think are kind of most business. So you've got like the the accounting side internally that's not necessarily statutory. So it's like building out your PL, understanding what your runway is going to be, revenue recognition, what's your gap uh, standards in the countries that you're operating in, these kinds of things, right? And that is, I think, what sometimes people think is the scary bit. But again, like that stuff is like, you don't need to be an accountant to be able to like lead a team that's doing that work. Because again, a large part of this is kind of like, there is one way or another way to do this. And maybe there are some strategic decisions that you can get involved in. Um, and I've got a really excellent finance director who comes from a very like tried and tested finance background. And she runs very well that part of the team. And I'll give her like the strategic direction about kind of what I'm expecting and timelines and communications and things like that. But then this third part of finance, which I really love is like, finance is like a decision initiating function in a lot of ways, right? Like there's this, it's this part of the business that's a- able to, like you think about FP&A or um, like even getting involved in things like billing and, um, you know, the revenue operations side of things. They're a function that can really help your teams make great decisions by informing them really excellently about like forecasts that are coming up or trends they've seen in the past and kind of help your team by like helping them build out like ROI calculations and like that piece of work. I don't think you need to have a financial background to be really good at helping use numbers to tell a story or use numbers to inform a good decision. Yeah. And that's actually the piece of finance that I spend the majority of my time thinking about. It's like, how can I help our team? How can our finance team be the team that people feel like without them, I would never have been able to make a great decision? Yeah, totally. I mean, that makes sense. And I think is really consistent with what I've done in some way, shape or form or, or, or talk yeah. to other people in similar roles. Right. And I think maybe there is just that like part of what makes it scary is there, especially when you are self-taught or you feel like Actually, I would say this isn't even finance specific. I'll back up and say I think this is operation specific because so many of us like didn't study like operations or, or HR in our undergrads. Like, yeah, everyone's like, this is how I'm doing it. Are you doing it the same way? There's this like imposter syndrome sometimes that like comes around where and I think with finance, because people are like, well, I'm not an official. And, and your point it's so to your point, right? That like you can hire an accountant, you can hire external vendors. Like it is that strategic thinking and yeah, I hope that this is maybe some reassurance for anyone who's like, am I doing this right with finance? Because, because yeah, you laid it out so nicely in, in kind of the different ways that finance all scrolls up and what, what finance really means, right? Like there's a couple different types. 
Yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, like there are definitely moments where I think it's I think if you've got really messy finance like not not that your financials are messy, but that like you're like record keeping or you're like yeah, you know, your full costs or whatever are really messy, that can be a really scary place to begin. Like I took over the finance function at Whereby and we had just grown so quickly during the pandemic that there was just a bit of chaos in how we were managing things. And it was no like discredit to anyone who was in the team before. It was literally just like so much had happened in such a short period of time that like we had the team had another chance to get budgets. We had another chance to have like a proper uh, kind of cash model, look ahead or a revenue model that connected back to like a headcount plan. Like there was a lot of really big missing pieces. And that is quite scary because that is then like what skeletons are hiding in this, these closets that I have to like go out and find. And then how am I going to deal with those problems? Yeah. But like ultimately somebody has to, somebody has to deal with them. And like a really strategic person that's good at making good business decisions with a, like a skilled accountant, that's a great combo mm-hmm. to be able to deal with it. It's more like you should, everyone should be more than capable, I think. Yeah, totally. Like we're here to solve problems, right? Like that's what we love. That's like one of the reasons we're probably sure. in this job. So well, I want to uh, to dive into another uh, one of your functions, and that's legal. It's not often that I feel like I see lawyers and people ops in the same person, and so I would love to hear like wh- what made you decide to go back to law school. Tell me more about that journey. <laughs> yeah, this is so funny. So I originally my first degree was in uh, journalism and communication, um, but I actually did get into law school for my first degree. And I uh, decided not to do it because everyone kept being like, oh my God, law school is so crazy. You're going to be overwhelmed. And I was like, you know, however young, I was like a baby and I was like, oh, I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to have a no life and be studying for seven years. So I'm like, I'm not going to do it. So I actually yeah. like pulled out before I even started. Like I just never, it was a, it was a non-starter for me. And then working in people operations, I was finding myself like really frustrated with the fact that like I felt like there were questions that I could easily answer but I couldn't do it because I didn't have the knowledge in like legal and how everything kind of pieced mm-hmm. together and how to think about things you know I was doing a round of redundancies and we needed to have some legal support help us out with some things and I was like I just found myself deeply frustrated that I was like why can't I self-serve this like why can't I mm-hmm. like, why can't I solve these problems myself it was so overwhelming to figure out like how to read the statutes and like you know, what the, what the right process was. So I, yeah, I was, it was just before the pandemic actually. Um, and I was working in a role where again, I found myself feeling like I just didn't have the breadth and depth that I would, I kind of really wanted in, in my career. So I was like, maybe I'll just go back to school. So yeah, I went back to law school and I, I did my degree and I, I focused on the legal implications of remote, uh, working cross border was like my, my last year yeah. focus and my dissertation which is like a kind of nice little crossover between kind of contract law, employment law, and a few other bits and pieces. And I just really loved it. I love studying. So I was, I was a vibe. <laughs> a vibe. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I feel like the, that dissertation topic and like kind of these intersections of, you know, employment law and remote work and all of that is a super interesting topic. One that I'm definitely interested in, and I'm guessing it's of particular interest to a lot of a lot of our listeners, some of which we have a pretty large community in London, so the UK component, but also just like more broadly, I think post-pandemic, this is something a lot of companies are still navigating and, and trying to figure out. And so I guess like, I'm like, I have so many questions, but I don't even know what questions I don't know, <laughs> you know, like what to ask about. I guess like, how has that informed how you like run whereby, like in terms of how you classify people or manage benefits or I don't know, like anything that sticks out there? Yeah. I mean... Things have already changed so much from when I did that dissertation a couple of years ago. Obviously, like the pandemic has just really like 
thrown spanners into the works. Um, and so many countries have responded back much quicker than I think we people predicted um, at the time. Webby is fully distributed. So we do have, we have three NCs. We have the US, which is where I am, the UK, which is where our CEO is, and then um, Norway, which is where our executive chair and our uh, partial owners are. So Norway is our HQ. We were founded in Norway. Oh. But we have people everywhere. We have people in about 15 different countries um, from like India to Chile. Um, and we kind of use a bit of a mosaic of hiring coverage. So we have we have a basically a notion page we send out when you get offered to work for Whereby that gives you options about which contract you'd like to sign. Um, and obviously the three entities are an option. So you can go and live in one of these entities if you have right to work. So if somebody is based in the UK, generally they'll just be like, oh, the UK contract. But if someone's maybe based in France, but is British and they're like, actually kind of want to spend nine months of the year in the UK and a bit of time in France back and forth or something, mm -hmm. they may actually get some advice and go for the UK contract. There are obviously like some legal considerations there, which we include, like you have to spend 181 days inside the country for a lot of tax jurisdictions and a few other bits and pieces, right? But then we offer two options for distributed workers, either um, a consulting agreement, if you have the appropriate kind of status. So for example, there's a, a member of our team Actually, they've just left, but a member of our team that was with us mm. who also did some like university lecturing and other kind of side work outside of um, their work with us. And for them, going down the consultancy route made a lot of sense because they were like, well, I have multiple income streams and I actually consider myself to be like almost self-employed in the way that I work. So great. So they did that. Um, and we just make sure that we set up everything so that we were compliant in terms of uh, taxation, that they were very clearly a self-employed person and they had their own entity set up, et cetera. And then the other option is we have an employer of record relationship uh, where we can employ people through a employer of record in multiple countries, which some people opt for just for security. And also they don't you know, have the, the means or the reasons to set up their own self-employment. Yeah, totally. Interesting. Well, it's, I don't know that I've ever come across a company that like gives employees the choice, right? Of like, I feel like normally it's a, we're in the US and you're in the US. So we'll employ you as an employee in the US. And if you're outside the US, you're going through like deal or remote.com or like whatever, you know, like you're going through an employer record. So that's like a, a definitely an interesting approach. Have you all always done it that way? Or was this like a, a post remote post pandemic or post law school decision? This decision was based on like, whereby was fully remote before I joined and we were fully remote before the pandemic. We've always been a kind of distributed work workplace. And that's because our product is all about enabling kind of working from anywhere, enabling like people to connect. So one of the things that I do pretty much with every company when I first start working with them, especially if I'm kind of building a function, is I run a very badly named, and maybe we can come up with a better name, workshop called uh, Organizational Design Principles. Very dry. It doesn't sound good. This is the Goldman Sachs in me coming out. But Organizational Design Principles are basically like the principles that of which you agree as a leadership team about how you want to build your org. So like, do we want to be highly hierarchical or very flat? Do we want to have T-shaped team members or very specialized team members? Would we like to have a dominant junior workforce or we like to prefer to hire very senior people these decisions help you make cohesive choices one of the the things mm -hmm. i've really seen companies struggle with when they kind of get into this like scale mode is like the cmo really wants the like they really want to do like a bunch of juniors and have like an internship program and they really love the idea of like it's highly hierarchical like hot, lots of headcount lots of people function yeah. and then your vp products like i want to have very senior people, very lean teams. And then all of a sudden when they, the intersections start touching each other, 
it just falls apart because you've got really senior people trying to interact with really junior people or really like specialized people interacting with really T-shaped people who want to behave more like generalists. Yeah. So coming up with like a kind of a general set of principles around how you want to build your org at large, I think is really beneficial. Mm-hmm. So when I started at Whereby, we did that exercise. And one of the things that really came out of it was we need to have a very strong culture of like non-parentalism or non-paternalism or maternalism, which means that basically if we are fully remote, which we are, we believe then the best way to be fully remote is to be completely hours agnostic because you can't be fully distributed and then be kind of forcing people to work certain hours. It starts becoming quite brittle. So we said, okay, so if we're hours agnostic and people can work whatever hours they want, then the next question is going to be like, how do they self-manage? Well, we can't hire really junior people because that will be quite difficult for us. Um, We need to hire people that are fairly senior and also thrive in a very non-parental environment that are able to make their own decisions and raise their hand when something goes wrong. So that became one of our like kind of dominant org principles, which is we have this non-parental, highly autonomous culture. Some people hate that absolutely hate it and we had some people that worked in our team that didn't like it and we had some people that got through our interview process that, that didn't like it but everyone at whereby you know that that is one of the principles by which people um, thrive now the reason i'm giving this big long-winded story is because the idea about giving people the choice about which type of contract they would like to sign i think is like mm-hmm. a very good example of staying true to that we are giving you all of the information you need to make a decision we are not going to parent you in this choice if you want to just be in the UK and be employed through a UK employment contract, then obviously that's the choice that you will make. That's no problem. Mm-hmm. But if this is like something that you're genuinely interested in reading the different templates of contracts available to you and really like making an informed decision here, you have all the tools available to do that. We aren't going to tell you what the best choice is for you. So yes, we that, that's kind of the reason why we've done that. Yeah. I love that you went down that explanation. I was like dropping mental like bookmarks to come back. There's so many things I want to dive into there. Maybe the first is like, because you were talking about the title being dry. It's just, it just it so happens that yesterday I was giving a talk for like a cohort and they had assigned me that exact same title. <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is dry. We're going to call it growing with intention. And I was like, that's like slightly more like, I don't know, something. And I was like, right. And I had like sat there and was like, what else can I call this? And I like couldn't come up with a sexy name either. Although uh, mine was literally more about like building a hiring roadmap and like, yours I think it goes even further back at like the beginning which I love and I'm like already plotting I'm like how do I get to attend this workshop <laughs> like how do we how do we get you to oh it's so much fun so much yeah I love that yeah we do this I do this great uh, exercise in the workshop which I actually just encourage everybody to do generally yeah so I, I give a uh, like a xy axis grid right um so uh-huh. the entire leadership team comes so like five six people and I give an XY grid with a bunch of different things, like how hierarchical versus uh, maybe how I can't even think of a good example right now. But like, okay, here's here, okay. One of the examples I usually mm-hmm. use is how much leverage do you want people to have versus how skilled do you want them to be, right? So, oh, do you want okay. people to be almost like an investment banker? They're responsible for like huge portions of your potentially your um, uh, your portfolio. Or do you want to be more like Amazon where people have very little leverage, they have a very clear role, it's very like defined, and they're not – if someone at Amazon changes one little thing, it's Amazon is not going to be affected, right? Because their roles are very, very yeah. like low leverage. Or the other uh, axis is around um, skill. So like is it like Google DeepMind, everyone has a PhD, or is it like, again, like Amazon Warehouse where you can come in and learn the skills to do it in a day or two? And I ask everyone in the uh, workshop to plot their company where they are today 
and when they were where they want to be in five years time like where's the aspiration that you want us to be right yeah not the team the whole company so all the leaders put themselves in this little grid where they want to be and then I say great now I'm going to listen to you for the next 20 minutes while you all agree on two locations Mm -hmm. And then I have to just listen to them argue about where they want these two post-it notes to be, which is hilarious because often the engineering leader is like, we want everyone to have PhDs. And then the person in marketing is like, we don't mind, we could train them on the job. And then all of a sudden these two people have to like argue it out. It's hilarious. Yeah. I'm like literally like immediately had the vision of like that gif or the, it's not even a gif. It's like that meme of like the house burning in the background and the little girl who's like, yes, (laughs) like smirking. Where you're like, yes, please. Um, I mean, in the scenario that you outline of like the marketing person and engineering person is exactly how I would imagine it to go. And so like, do you find that they like really do find like common ground as like a company or that like generally there are some caveats of like, yeah, but engineering is going to be more here and marketing is going to be more here. They, they find common ground. I pretty much very rarely have a case where they genuinely and I, I do say to them like if you really believe your company is an exceptional situation and you have this like second organizational design structure that exists within your true organizational design fine you can pull out the other team and i'm like but just remember like there's only so many things that your company could be an exception on before you start becoming like an overly complicated business right so yeah. That's a great way of putting it and a lot nicer than how I've sometimes put it where I'm like, you're not a snowflake. Like, you're not special. I know you think you're special, but you're not special. (laughs) You know, like, I'm going to save that for my back pocket. It's like a much more tactful way of saying it. You can only be an exception in so many ways. (laughs) Exactly. You can only be an exception in so many ways. But yeah, I think generally people find common ground and they reach this point where like the, the, the conversations can get like quite detailed about, you know, where people would like teams to be and why and I think it's also really beneficial. Like that exercise for me is like, obviously it's about figuring out like the true center, right? But actually what it's really about is encouraging the leaders to have a really general and open conversation about their actual ideal org and really hear each other's like challenges about it. Like it's not about putting the post-it note on there. I don't actually care if they never finish it. What I want them to do is to have like an actually engaged conversation about like, well, no, it doesn't make sense if we hire 25 interns next year because my team doesn't have the same structure. Like, you know, it, it, yeah. getting them to like understand the way that the other is thinking about things and realize that they, they have to compromise on even this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great takeaway for everyone listening to have to have these conversations sooner rather than later, right? Mm-hmm. Also really want to dig into, um, I think of it as async culture. Um, I think you called it out like hours agnostic, which I love. And I think is something that so often I feel like I talk to operation leaders who are experiencing problems. And then they're like, how do I solve this problem? And I'm like, this is a symptom of this larger problem of like async communication (laughs) or like running a team and not being clear. It's like not being able to plot on the X to Y axis of how hours agnostic you are and like how much overlap you need. And like, that just is such a messy ball that I think it's like, it's like a pile of problems and people like circle it (laughs) and aren't quite sure how to like approach it. And so I would love to hear about kind of at least more um, at whereby about how you foster that and facilitate it, especially as like the operations team um, who is so often responsible for like the policies and procedures and stuff. Yeah. So ours agnostic, we, again, like going into this idea of like non-parentalism, we kind of crafted this, doc which i think is like a public if you look up our open handbook you'll find it and this doc talks very openly about the fact that like every decision we've made at whereby is a trade-off between something good and something bad and like you know we've, we've basically we've picked ours agnosticism which is we think the right thing to do given the fact that we're fully distributed and we're building this product and it connects back to the mission this is the reason we're doing it 
great thing about hours agnosticism if it's 2 p.m and you want to go skiing because a great snowfall just fell then like be my guest go out and do it like cancel the rest of your afternoon focus time and go make it happen bad side about hours agnosticism someone in australia wants to have a one-to-one with you at 7 a.m you're going to have to get up and have a one-to-one and we you can't have the good without the bad and that's like something we've been very open with our team about right so if someone comes to me and says I'm really frustrated because the person put a meeting in my calendar at 8 p.m. My response back would be like, well, what would, what would you do if you were going for a mortgage or something and your bank put a meeting in at 8 p.m.? Like be a grown-up, <laughs> respond back and make a plan that works for both parties because you need to get your mortgage and you need to have this meeting. So I can only help you facilitate that conversation that you get to an outcome you're happy with. But what I'm not going to do is tell you that we're going to like lock your working hours down in a specific way. Like that's your responsibility to figure out how that works. And again, some people in our team love that. And some people in our team who have had in the past worked for us when this kind of new way of working came in really struggled with it because they found that they were like having to now take responsibility of a thing that they didn't necessarily want to take responsibility for at work, which was their time in a new way. Mm Yeah, but um, we that that's kind of like the the main thing, like from a policy decision, and then I would say from the other thing as well is like the, you know our teams are spread geographically quite far, so I think there's also a big responsibility on me leading the teams to be like I have a lot more responsibility. I think to be very careful and thoughtful about how I plan stuff into the team's calendars, but also what's coming up for them around that like structure. So I'll give you an example, right? Like, so we have quarterly planning every quarter, same as every team probably in the world. Uh, we have like a, a retrospective and we have a, a goal planning session, right? And like, they are always in the calendar at the a full three months before as a whole. So people know when they are. And we always have like a clear like, agenda about when you, when you need to be expected to be there, when it's optional to be there, et cetera. And one of the things that I also need to completely avoid as a leader is like coming up with a structure in that meeting. So I cannot enter that meeting and say like, these are our output metrics. Here's some ideas about how we might want to do it this quarter. I have to already have a really clear understanding about like, okay, so this quarter, we're going to have this meeting at this time. Does that work for everyone? And this is our plan. I've spent a lot more time kind of being very intentional about how we're going to work together. And I can't like come up with that on the fly because it starts really like, throwing a wrench into the team's world when they're having to like figure out what to do together at the same time as being kind of informed how they're going to do it and which time it's going to be and whose calendar they need to work with. It starts becoming very complicated and stressful for them. So I think that's one of the things I find leaders fail with when they try to work remotely. Like they don't really see it as this whole operating system change. They see it as like, well, I can just do the exact same things I do now, which is rock up to a meeting and tell everyone like, let's brainstorm how many meetings we're going to have next month. And everyone's like, well, we're also doing this at the same time as planning our projects and at the same time as we've all been working up at five in the morning to make this happen. Like what the hell? Anyway, it's a bit of a rambly answer, but hopefully it's helpful. No, I think, uh, yeah, very helpful. And I think the, yeah, thinking of it as an operating system is a really crucial distinction that I think you're right. I think people are like, how do we, and this is like so much of the pushback, right? That we see now with like this whole like return to office, remote work, like part of that conversation is this like, is this wasn't remote work. This was working from home during a pandemic and like, what is remote work versus like what is working from home? Because in my mind, they're they're two different things, right? Of like you and your team are all in the same city working the same hours. It's very different than a team like whereby with people in all the countries who really has to think about like what do we use meetings for? Because like meetings aren't just they're one on ones. They're team brainstorming. They're planning. They're like 
they're stopping by someone's desk and asking a quick question. They're like, you can't, yeah. you can't use it for all of those things. And yeah, getting aligned on what do we use meetings for? And then, like you said, like the responsibility of the leader to like, to do that prep. Exactly. I think there's also something really interesting about like your team when like when remote working became more prevalent, I think it gave this permission for people to start questioning the fabric of decisions that we've made, right? Which is a good thing. Like I think questioning and changing things is a really good thing, right? But what it started leading to, which I think has been a really valuable shift between the, the worker and the employee has been, sorry, the worker and the employer has been really questioning like, what is the problem we're solving by doing X? What is the problem we're solving by bringing yeah. everyone into an office? What is the problem we're solving by doing? So when our employees started saying like, well, we don't need to do good work in the office. Like if the problem that you're solving is having everyone together because that's where we're most productive, then the answer to that problem is actually, it's false. Like the hypothesis yeah. isn't, isn't proven true. So your workforce really started expecting your, your leadership team and your people operations team, your operations team to come up with policies and ways of working and solutions for them, products for them, features for them, if we're talking the product management talk, that actually solved a legitimate problem. And I think that that expectation is like, first of all, a brilliant thing because it means that you it's a higher bar for your people and operations team. They can't just do something because they want to or because it's easier, because it's a solution everyone else is doing. And also it I think it uh it encourages like a much more valuable contribution from a people operations and an operations team. Like you have to be doing stuff that actually solves problems, not just stuff you think solves problems or that you, you know, is a nice solution. Yeah. And I think that 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 whole that is now like sort of cracking open questions around like, okay, so you're saying that we can only be remote three days a week. Well then why is it Wednesday? And like Sometimes it is just literally like, we, we want to do a day because we're a client-facing business and we want to have clients on site and Wednesday's the best day for our clients and that's the answer to the problem. And for most people, actually, a, like, a cognizant answer to a genuine problem will actually make people be like, okay, that's fine. I get it. No problem. Totally. But it's, it's when you start being like, it's just because we need a day and Wednesday's the day that people will start being like, well, kind of F you. Like, yeah. Then yeah, I think it's like natural to like buck against that, right? Of like why third like no, I have a better reason, especially if it inconveniences them or they hate traffic is worse on Wednesdays or they have to drop their kids off at school on Wednesdays or like whatever the case may be, right? Like there's reasons behind it. And I think this comes up this used to come up a lot for me with like transparency, because I that's like the big value of mine as a leader and like I wanna work and build companies that are like radically transparent. I think it just like allows us to all make better decisions when people are like looped in, when they know the financials, when they like have that information yeah. and something that people are constantly like the kind of contrast to that. Like when I got pushed back on, it was like, it really comes down. I think maybe even back to like that paternalism thing of like, can you trust people to like be rational human beings? Right. And to like hear a reasoning and say like, here's why we're doing it. Right. Like so often when you like really boil it down, that's what the pushback was. And I was just like, yeah, yeah like, I'm going to tell them why I picked these two health insurance plans because even though we had like a town hall to discuss health insurance plans because like X, Y, and Z, and if they don't agree with me, that's fine. Most of the time they understand that like I listen to them and I'm giving the reasoning as why we picked the plans and then they're adults. They can move on. They, we can agree, you know, like some things we can't agree to disagree on and just like move on, you know, but like so often people are like, no, you can't, like that's going to be, and I'm like, it's like a, an avoidance of tough conversations and a lack of trust in people right? Like have the tough conversation and trust people. 
to be adults. Trust like you're trusting life. these people with your entire code base and like speaking directly to your customers and access to your Twitter logins. So like it's like, are you serious? Like okay, so and your Stripe account and your money. Exactly. Like, Here's a great example of something that I think is really funny in the same the same kind of like trust space, right? Which is like connected to paternalism and like good decision making and all these things. So again, fully remote, we're a company that really like is giving people a lot of autonomy. And a lot of the time, people aren't logged on at the same time as their manager. So, like, you're pretty much independently working for, like, three or four hours a day and you Mm -hmm. need to get something done. So I said, I want everyone in the whole company just to have a credit card, like an online credit Mm -hmm. card that they can use to make purchases as they need to. There's a cap. It's, like, 500 pounds a month. For managers, it's 2,000 pounds or dollars a month. But, like, it's just there to use. So if you want to buy a stock image, if you're writing a blog, buy the stock image. If you need to, like, get some lunch for your team because you're a manager, grab it. I don't care, right? Basically, there's no expense under 500 pounds or 2,000 pounds. That's so bad that we can't, like, kind of retrospectively have a conversation with someone and say, like, hey, the third delivery in a a row probably wasn't appropriate. Let's just, like, rein it in, shall we? So we implemented that and we actually give people access to those cards the week before they start working for us. And we say, you start working for us in a week, you've got this credit card, um, you've obviously mm-hmm. signed a contract with us and you can use this to like purchase your laptop, purchase stuff you need for your home office. We've given you a doc about how we suggest you use it and like, you know, ask us if you've got any questions. And that's already like, an, for so many people, that's such a massive positive for them when they join. They're like, wow, I can't believe you're trusting us. We haven't even started in the team yet and you're already giving me fully access to everything that I need. But like, we have never, this is not true. We've had one instance of abuse over the three years Mm -hmm. we've implemented this policy. One instance of abuse. And it was a very unfortunate situation with somebody who was very aggrieved and made a silly decision that they apologized for post-fact, right? That is less than the amount of abuse that I have had on previous expense policies that required top-down approval. Totally. And like, it goes, I think, back to that whole thing of like, we're talking about like people ops teams, like everything they need, they do need to be solving a problem. And I think in the same way, all of your policies need to be solving a problem that, and you have to ask yourself, is this a real problem or is this an assumed problem? And this is something I like try to do a lot where I'm like, is this a boogeyman? Because like, we've always done it this way, right? Like people are going to abuse the credit card. And it's like, are they? Because like at the end of the day, like, do they want this like small charge under 500 pounds more than like their job? exactly it was like really ridiculous yeah how do you how do you say and then I always ask myself okay I'm like okay even if it if it's an assumed problem what's the worst outcome right like we lost 500 pounds and had to have an awkward conversation versus how many times did someone waste time because they were waiting for permission like there was like exactly how much time did I have to spend giving people temporary credit cards raining in figuring out permissions issues like I feel the same way about logins. Just give them the damn login and I'll like, <laughs> when it becomes a problem, we'll rein it in. Completely. You know, like within reason, obviously. But like, you know, there's a lot of things like, I don't care if you have access to our Canva account, like whatever, you know. Go nuts. I've literally had though people, like people, leaders, when I tell them about this policy, like this this approach we've got with our credit cards, right? Yeah. And this is just like one small example of a very like, again, we've got to give yeah. like full access to our data as long as it's not uh, personal information, like a bunch of other stuff, right? Yeah. I've given like I've t- I've given this example to a people ops leaders before, and they've literally been like, "I just I would never. Oh my gosh, I could never do that." Like, and I will tell them like, "Look, our de- like our experiment of this, and other companies yeah. I've worked with who have implemented a similar thing, has proven time and time again this is a very effective way to manage the team, and it's like it's very effective yeah. and efficient for them to solve problems." And they would still be like, "No, I still couldn't." I still couldn't do it. What if? What if? What if? And it's like, um, imagine if your team found out. If I found out that 
somebody thought of me that way that like worked with me and my company, I would be absolutely mortified. If they're like, yeah, she's great and we trust her with our, our payroll. But if we gave her a credit card, you never know. She might just spend it on Amazon like delivery. <laughs> like what? Yeah. It's like you're going to see the expense. That's the thing is like people are like – and also you, like, still see- you should be hiring people that you trust who are going to do good work who aren't going to use a credit card. You know, the way you have to find out that they're not trustworthy is that they spend 500 pounds. Okay, cool. Like we dodged a bigger bullet, you know? And I, I feel like all of this is actually a really great segue to your book, <laughs> which I'm making a couple of leaps here. But I feel like this running teams with this like problem focused mindset of like identifying a problem uh, and like working backwards from that and, and making sure that you're solving a problem, right? When you not just like prioritizing things for the sake of prioritizing them or because other companies are doing them, I feel like it ties in. But I would love to hear from you about like, you talk about running ops teams like a product team. You've written a whole book on a related subject. Uh, what does that mean to you? Yeah, right? Like, tell us about that. And then we're going to talk about the book specifically. Yeah, the book. Oh my gosh. So, uh, well, this, the whole, this whole thing came out of like that, that the kind of three product psychotomy thing I was mentioning before. I wrote this blog post back like, God, like four, five, four or five years ago, maybe three or four years ago, something like that. And it was about the idea of like running a people operations team, like a product function, um, analogizing your employee experience to a subscription product that people subscribe to every month. And then when they resign, they kind of like churning off your product and talking about how uh, really you have to, you have a responsibility to kind of stand out in the marketplace of culture. You're making decisions that are trade-offs to attract or detract your, uh, your US, like your ICP, who's your ideal customer profile. And what is your, like, what is unique about your business? Like so often I was seeing companies just go out and be like, we're great because we have bee bags and we have like snack wall and you can come work for us. And like, that's just not an interesting proposition to a lot of people. But also I found that it was like, I really saw it get like very heightened during the pandemic where I think I've talked about this on a couple of podcasts before, but where like operations leaders would send out a survey to their entire company being like, do you think we should work from work remotely? And like the, the company would respond back with like, here's our, what we think. Like, how many days do you think we should work? Which days? Like, asking the company this question in a big survey. And I was like, what massive company-spanning operational, like, operating system-level decision would you put out to a random anonymous survey? And you're, It's an insane proposition to me. But I think it was just such a perfect reflection of the fact that a lot of businesses are operating their, like, actual company as, like, this homogenous soup of, like, kind of vague solutions that they've pasted together or, like, kind of generalized preferences from a group of people and never really had to think about like, what do we want to be? And like, is that okay if we turn off certain people? Because that ultimately is what's going to end up with your, your team really loving working where you're at and being very, very crystal clear about it, but also you being able to make actually informed and like opinionated decisions around things like how you operate expenses or how you operate your like, I don't know, hiring process, whatever. And that is basically the the kind of logic I took into this blog post I wrote, and then I ended up writing this whole big book about how to build your people and your operations teams with this mindset, how to think about things with like user experience in mind and doing user research and actually like thinking from first principles when solving problems instead of uh, solutions oriented thinking. So like, oh, I have this problem, like I I want to implement new benefits. Well, great, these are the benefits I had in my old company. I'll just bring them mm-hmm. in here. No, like now it's like, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Who are your USP? What are they interested in? Do research with them, ask them questions, figure out the like the tactics. What's the strategy of what you're trying to get? Is this what's best for your mission as a company? Then implement the solution. 
means that you end up with having, yeah, these much more commercial and output orientated people and operations teams who are actually there to like deliver value to people and not just there to, I guess, like for compliance and to uh, run internal programs and be busy. Yeah. So who would you say is like the audience for the book? Like when you were writing it, who do you think like was going to like get the most out of it or who needs to read this, I guess? Yeah. So it's, um, I've written it with like kind of three audiences in mind, founders, people that want to build a company and like have ideas about how they like to do it. Chief operating people, people are responsible for the actual company operations. And then obviously people, people as well. And actually more and more I've had uh, VCs um, interested in, in reading it because they're really interested in kind of influencing their teams to think this way and, and influence their founders. So it really is written from that perspective with a big focus on, on kind of people teams but yeah, really for like kind of all leadership in operations world. Um, it's funny though, like I found that the founders and COOs really like the book and they really like what's in it. And a lot of people, people do too. So I don't want to discredit them, but they really naturally understand it. They get it. A lot of founders are already very product oriented people. Maybe they're actually builders themselves. They come from an engineering background or a product background. The, the audience I've actually had the most trouble with hilariously has actually been like people directors who just don't really want to get it maybe. And maybe that's a mean thing to say, but the preference is like, I really like my centers of excellence, HR, shared services, payroll team model. And I don't want to change that. I want to solve the problems that I find fun. Yes. uh, Whether they're verified problems or not. And I think, you know, for better for some of those people are really good at their jobs in like a different, like when you think about the job, like, in that particular narrow lane. Um, and also uh, sometimes these are the people that like are, I'm just going to say it, like they're who gives like HR the, the reputation that we have sometimes. The bad name, yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the workplace police. Yeah. And so I guess like I wouldn't have predicted that, but now that you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, don't care. That like totally makes sense. Like I've met plenty of people who would, who would really buck at that idea of like, you know, it's like how you put in like customer support or, whether it's customer support or community management, like all these things that sometimes can be a little sales adjacent and like a commercial for-profit business and people really buck against that. Like, I don't want to sell. I just want to do this little thing. Mm-hmm. The same thing of like, it's people ops. I just want to take care of my people. I don't want to exactly. think about it as like part of a business or a product, you know? So I guess that makes sense. Completely. And like, there's a, I really like in the book make like labored, like the whole chapter dedicated to me being like, your whole job can't just be doing one-to-ones with people and advising yeah. them on their challenges they're having. Like the I think HRBP, like this is the kind of people partnering role is really important. And I say that there's like two halves to everybody in people's operations job. One half mm-hmm. is what I call human operations, which is like advisory work, coaching, mentoring, like running through difficult situations, being there for people during tough times, et cetera. Like yes, a hundred percent your job still contains that. But that is there really to service the qualitative data that you need to build great products to solve their problems and to further the business. And that other half of the job is like, it is the job that you need to be getting measured on constantly because that's the output of being really great at listening to people and getting advice and understanding being on the pulse of the team. And I think a lot of people push back on this model because they really love doing the advisory and discussing and coaching and everything else. And when all of a sudden I say like, you also have a responsibility to actually build things and not in a silo and not just copy and paste other policies and not just, you know, make a pretty progression framework that nobody reads. Like you actually have to build something that's fit for purpose here. 
it starts, I think, making people a little uncomfortable because then they have to change their entire world, I think. Yeah, and they have to be held accountable to whether it works or not, right? Which, yeah, can be scary if that's, you know, and I just want to be like, yes, yes, preach. Like, once more for everyone in the back, right? Like, the whole, like, that's uh, what, that whole, like, especially the bit, I'm just going to repeat it for once more for everyone in the back of, like, the one-on-ones and that people stuff you do, it has to be the qualitative piece, right? Like, yeah. to everything else you're doing. And I think that that's, that's such a great way of thinking about it and something that's so often missed. So, well, now you've written a book. I think it's, I've been out in the world for like a whole couple months. So I'm sure I can't be the first person who's like, yeah, you did this huge thing. When are you going to do another one? Are you like, one oh my done? God, or no. are, you, are you like, <laughs> you're like, no, I'm good. One was good. <laughs> Look, I mean, never say never, right? Like, I don't want to be like, I'm never writing a book. And then in like five years time, someone's like, remember that podcast you did, Opsy, where you said you're never writing a book? I don't think I will. I don't know if I've got, like, I definitely don't have any other ideas. So uh, there's nothing to, to write about, but um, I don't know. I think there are like seven things in this episode that I'm like, Jess, please write a whole book about that because I would read it. I'll make you a list for your next book. It's a long process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that thing. <laughs> yeah. How long did it take you to write the book on that note, out of curiosity? I think beginning to end, it took me like pure writing time, like kind of two, almost two years. Plus like the 10 years of your career that gave me the expertise <laughs> to be able to write it. <laughs> And then, like, I think there's probably, like, six months on either side of, like, book proposal, discussion, contracty stuff, and then, like, closing out, marketing, cover design, like, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it was a long process. And I stupidly went into it, literally, with this thought in my head was, like, oh, it's like writing 10 blogs. No, girl. It is not like writing 10 blogs. What were you thinking? <laughs> oh, my God. I was so stupid. Um, oh, man. I Yeah. So, for anyone listening who's thinking about writing a book, girl, it's not like 10 blogs. <laughs> No, it is not 10 blogs. It is like writing one gigantic blog that takes two years to write. So, like, that's exactly what it's like. It's writing a book. I did, like... Oh, my God. That's that's how long it takes me to write one blog post. Like, I overanalyze and realize, you know, it's like... It, I, treat, I treat every blog post like it's like a dissertation. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm like, this is too long. No one will read it. And it's like, yeah, bitch, because you spent two years writing it. I will literally write a blog post like on a like I will not write anything for months and then all of a sudden I'll be like I'm gonna write a blog post about X and then I'll just like on a whim at like 10 p.m. spend like two hours and just write this blog post and post it out in the world and then completely forget about it and then like six months later someone would be like hey I read this manic blog post you wrote about like progression frameworks and I actually hate them and I'm like huh yeah I probably shouldn't like do that but anyway it's life. <laughs> I know I'm envious. I love that you do that. And also, uh, I don't think I would describe any of your blog posts as manic. And I've read, I think, almost all of them. So <laughs> uh, so kudos to you and your 2am brain. May we all be as uh, smart and articulate as 2am, Jesse. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I should let you go. Um, and just thanks so much for coming. I feel like I could sit here and pick your brain all day. So thank you for, for letting us all peek into, into that great brain and all the great stuff that you're working on. Oh, thanks. Love it. So super fun and interesting. And everyone, follow Jesse online. I'm going to put all the links in the show notes. And make sure to buy her awesome book. Mine is on order and will be waiting for oh. me when I get home. So. <laughs> amazing well i hope you like it i would love the feedback as well if anyone has anything let me know what they think about it um it was lovely chatting to you i had such a fun time we should definitely do it again another time um and otherwise i'll speak to you soon yeah thanks again thanks for listening to opsy you can find resources and links from this episode in the show notes at opsy.org and while you're there i hope you'll take a second to join our free community where we share resources and opportunities that help us all level up in our ops careers Again, that link is opsy.work.
Until next time, stay opsy, friends. <laughs>